Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 23 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 8th of July. And Leon, what's on the menu for this week? Well, we've got a terrific interview with Megan Mullier. She's the Director of Research and Information at AsiaLink, which is part of Melbourne University. And she's going to be talking to us all about the growing business connections between Australia and Singapore. Singapore is a very good option for Australia because we've been dealing with them, well, for a long time and we know one another. We know one another and they all speak English there. Indeed, didn't somebody at one point say that Lee Kuan Yew ought to be the Prime Minister of Australia? Indeed. Well, he did extraordinary things over there. One of the great leaders of our time. So we're going to be talking to Megan Mulia, and then we're going to have a terrific chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis, and he's going to be talking to us all about the political impasse that's come out of the elections and what that means for the state of the economy and what are the economic choices ahead. I think we conclude that the world's in a very funny place right now. Absolutely. But first of all, let's have a chat to Megan Mulia. Megan, um, the Australian government's looking at drawing Australia closer to Singapore with a package of measures. Uh, what's your view about this? I think this is really positive for uh, Australia and Singapore um, in terms of the agreement that was uh, concluded. It brings closer the two economies in terms of further integration around several areas, including education, professional services, and just ease of mobility in terms of um, foreign talent also into Singapore as well. So, so what are the opportunities uh, for Australian businesses in Singapore? Uh, the, the opportunities are vast, really. Uh, Singapore provides a great regional hub for Australian businesses. It's a good gateway, I guess, into uh, ASEAN and Southeast Asia and then also on into China as well. So, And Singapore has positioned itself particularly well as being the, um, the centre for businesses within the region to almost have like a hub and spoke kind of arrangement from um, from Singapore into other markets that surround it. Of course, uh, most, most of the time English is spoken there, so Correct. it's, uh, it's uh, pretty easy. Yeah, it's a relatively easy market. Since about 2006, Singapore has been the number one uh, country in terms of ease of doing business. So it's a very uh, straightforward market to operate in. Uh, very transparent regulations are, are easy to deal with, um, which makes it easier for Australian businesses to operate there. Do you see Singapore as a gateway to Southeast Asia rather than to China? Um, Both, really. Um, uh, It definitely is a gateway to Southeast Asia, um, you know, just in terms of location and access, um, but also um, flows through Singapore in terms of financial flows. Uh, Singapore offers itself as a financial centre as well, as does Hong Kong. But in terms of uh, money flows from even from ASEAN countries into China, Singapore is a good kind of midpoint to allow that to happen. What are the opportunities for Australian businesses in a place like Singapore? Well, Singapore's a very, um, how do you say, knowledge economy. So um, in terms of the services sector, there's there's copious amounts of opportunities in Singapore, particularly around financial services, fintech opportunities, professional services. Uh, traditionally, banks have had a very strong presence there as well. So, And we're finding companies such as Corda Mentha, which is an Australian um, a forensic accounting firm who are using places like Singapore to base their regional hub and then move out into other markets in Asia as well. Vietnam is a rising, certainly industrial nation. You can work through Singapore, say Singapore banks or you know, the, the nexus between Australia and Singapore will be quite long-standing, but Vietnam's still developing, isn't it? Is there opportunity there? Um, definitely. From Singapore into that, I, I guess we call it the greater Mekong area, so you know, Vietnam, Laos, um, even through to Thailand, Singapore offers kind of a good, a good 
point uh, or gateway point into those markets. The, the transparency, the, the clear regulatory environment of Singapore um, provides a good base to go into some of those markets that may yet still be developing. And, and um, uh, from a risk point of view, Singapore then offers the uh, companies a, a good place to set up a business and then operate there into other parts of uh, ASEAN as well. Yeah, so trust, which is at the basis of good banking, yep. is much better going through Singapore at this point, isn't it? Yeah, at this point, correct. Although, you know, Vietnam is, uh, if we look at Vietnam specifically, it's changing as well. It's its its rapidly changing. Uh, you know, if we look at the growing middle class, for example, that are rising up through parts of Asia, you know, the consumer class that are coming through, the demand is coming through in markets like Vietnam. So the opportunities for Australian businesses exist in all of these markets. Uh, you know, in terms of an operational point of view, Singapore may be seen as a preferential market for some companies because of some of the reasons I highlighted before from a regulatory risk management perspective. However, we also see Australian companies going direct into markets such as Vietnam or Thailand or, uh, you know, perhaps less mature markets like Laos, for instance, um, as they're becoming more familiar and feeling that they can manage some of those risks themselves. Yeah, in terms of, well, I have a friend who makes computer bags and backpacks and stuff, has moved his operation from China to Vietnam on the basis of quality. Yeah, we we see that happening a bit now as China comes off from that manufacturing-based economy, um, companies moving in into places like Vietnam to, um, you know, get goods manufactured. Um, Quality-wise, um, you know, the, the, the um, quality of the product coming out of these markets has improved considerably. Um, you know, there's a bit of upward pressure on um, wages, but, um, you know, so we do see a bit of a shift happening away from China into other parts of uh, Southeast Asia. One of the issues, I mean, if you, if you want to set up a business in China or, for that matter, any other part of Asia, you, you need a, a local partner. You cannot go in by yourself and that takes years and years and years to build up is there that sort of issue with australian businesses moving into singapore uh finding the right partner in singapore you know may be a much more straightforward process than perhaps in other markets i mean singapore is a very commercially driven uh, market to operate in so if it makes good business sense business generally want to work with you as you mentioned before english is widely spoken so that makes it easier it's based on the law of singapore is based on english law so um there's a lot of things there's there's a lot of reasons that, that kind of facilitate finding the right partner. In some other markets, um, it may take more time. It, it, it depends, really. We've done a lot of case studies into Australian businesses who have who shared their experience about um, how they've set up in different markets. One of the key things that comes out is the importance of finding the right partner. And we've had examples such as um, Bundaberg, which, you know, ginger beer manufacturer out of Queensland, who said, in, for example, in China, they um, had some difficulties in the beginning finding the right partner and perhaps made some mistakes. So they pulled out of the market for a little while but went back in once they felt that they were in the right environment they had the right partner framework to support them so you're 100% right finding the right partner is, is critical to business success would one of the advantages of Singapore particularly in services and things be that it is pretty stable politically isn't it yeah the the political st- uh, stability of Singapore definitely supports a business environment as well so um, you know that that gives businesses a level of comfort I get in, guess in terms of uh, operational point of view you know risk management etc being able to uh, follow regula- regulations and find that those regulations are adhered to that that gives businesses a sense of comfort then culturally is Singapore more akin 
to Australia and Australia to Singapore? Are we more comfortable together than in other parts of Asia? Look, I think there's a natural tendency. Singapore is a, is a relatively westernised um, nation. So, yeah, there is that um, comfort, that familiarity. Australia's had a long diplomatic relationship with Singapore as well, um, which also helps support Australian businesses in market. Um, although that said... Y- you know, we, we find with those markets, if you look at those markets that surround Singapore as well, um, you know, there are, for example, if we take Malaysia, there's been, you know, a 60-year history of strong diplomatic relations with Malaysia as well. So that definitely supports a business environment. I think, you know, factors such as the westernisation of Singapore comparative to some of its nations definitely has supported business in market. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it would be uh, easier to do business in a place like Singapore than, say, in a place like, say, Jakarta, for example, which would have quite a lot of challenges for Australian businesses. Yeah, there's yeah different complexities in a market like Jakarta. You know, there's complexities in terms of you know the regulatory environment, logistics, getting your product a- around in country, um, perhaps even appetite for um, your service or the product you may be offering would be quite different than say in in Singapore. So um, yeah, there's likely you know potential complexities there. You would actually do a lot of training of Australian businesses. I mean, what are the big mistakes Australian businesses make? when they go into Asia? Um, there's a few key ones. I think one one of the critical ones that we hear quite a bit is assuming that a product or a service that has been successful in Australia will naturally be successful in the region. Products and services need to be tailored um, for the market that is there and whether that's you know from a product in terms of appetite and taste or through to a service in terms of um, what is acceptable in market, then yeah, there's the, you know that definitely needs to be looked at closely. I think underestimating the time that it takes to, you know, find the right partner, uh, find the right solution for, for market. Sometimes that may be underestimated by Australian businesses as well. And particularly for the small, medium enterprise sector, one of the other things that we hear is that, you know, if they're, op- if they're opening an office in, in a market in Asia or in Singapore, for example, often you send your best talent from your Australian office, which may pose a bit of a drain on your operations here. So companies have underestimated just the impact that that may have on their business as well. So there's quite a number of challenges. Correct. A number of challenges, but there's great potential opportunities as well. Megan, thank you very much for your time. Thank Thank you. you. Well, there you are, Leon. You know, the opportunities in uh, Southeast Asia through Singapore and indeed a, a bit of a link with China as well. I think every Australian business should be listening to this. I think it's really important. Very much so. And now Stephen Kukoulos with another important message. Stephen Kukoulos, after Saturday's election result, a hung parliament looks most likely. You've got the credit ratings agencies warning whoever takes government that Australia could face a ratings downgrade if they don't get their budget in order. What's your take on it? Oh, look, I think all of those things are very relevant right now. And um, we do have the prospect of economic reform over the next couple of years, not just the next few months, but the next couple of years being really hamstrung, not only by difficulty in the House of Representatives, whoever forms government, probably the coalition at the moment, but it's the Senate that's the bigger problem, I would argue, that the hotpotch of parties, the Greens, the Nick Xenophon team, the uh, Pauline Hanson coming back, Darren Hinch and a range of other independents across the various states and territories will make it very, very hard for the government of the day to negotiate its reform. So that's the first issue. The other one on the AAA credit rating, negative watch probability, I think we can call it now. It seems likely that with this budget problem uh, becoming more acute over the next few months, that the rating agencies will be wanting to put Australia on a negative watch. And in a sense, 
that's not really the surprise. This was sort of brewing for the last, well, year or two or three, whereas each time the government and governments of both colours tried to improve the budget, uh, they got sideswiped by a big fall in commodity prices, by the domestic economy being a little bit weaker than they were assuming, and this very low wage and inflation climate hurts government revenue. So downgrade had its seeds a couple of years ago, but now with the hung parliament, it just about assures it, I think. So you're saying we are inevitably heading for a downgrade? Look, I'd say so. Unless there's some miraculous change in commodity prices, the budget position improves, or there's something that I can't quite foresee, I'd say that before Christmas, we'll certainly be on negative watch. I think that's the step that the rating agencies will take. They won't just go straight to a downgrade. They'll put a negative watch, leave it for a year, and then wait and see if there's any improvement and then if there's no improvement in the in perhaps the mid-year uh, update before Christmas from the new government, uh, then they'll probably switch to the downgrade. Now, uh, the last time Australia was downgraded, that was uh, by Moody's, and that was in the 80s, and that uh, led in that all that uh, great microeconomic reform of the uh, Keating <laughs> government, uh, Keating and Hawke governments. Uh, uh, we're unlikely to see something like that. Well, that's the problem. You know, a lot of people say um, a good economic crisis is a good chance to reform your economy. I know it sounds a bit perverse, but there's an element of truth in that, that when there's an urgent need to do something, and perhaps a downgrade will be something that the new government, whoever it is, can sort of cling to and try to get their reform processes through. But as we just noted, with the parliament the way it is, any policies that seriously look to increase revenue through tax increases in different parts of the economy or, as we've been saying, cutting expenditure will be very hard to get through the Senate because the minor parties will uh, assert their power, which, of course, they have plenty of, and limit the ability to get these reforms through. And on the contrary, I think, from what I can understand of a lot of the minor parties' uh, plans, they, they seem to be more towards extra spending, fewer taxes, which, of course, is the, the last thing the economy needs right now. Yes, yeah, so, and, and so the Senate will be the wild card here. It, it is the wild card, but we still need the government. Look, uh, whether it's Mr Morrison or Mr Bowen, who's treasurer, and probably Mr Morrison, he needs to come out, in, if, if he wins, he needs to come out in the early weeks of the uh, post-election period with a with a meaningful statement on policy reform, not just the company tax cut, which is which is fine. You know, that was not the worst policy I've seen, but it was really being phased in over many years and uh, was obviously costing a lot of money over the medium term. He needs to come up with a range of other policies that are going to really set the scene for this next term of, of government. And there's the old saying that good economics is good politics. Uh, so if you get the economics right, you get the politics right. And I think that was Keating's other legacy that we all should learn from. And in a sense, one of the reasons why we've had this political dysfunction for the last decade or so from both sides is that they haven't got the economics perfect. And it's been easy to criticise various parts of policy, the budget deficits or Medicare co-payments or a whole bunch of things which are obviously politically unpopular. You've still got to get your big picture economics right. You've got to maintain your AAA credit rating. Look, if we can get through the next 12 months and the Treasurer has maintained the AAA credit rating, the budget's uh, improving and we've got the economy growing at a reasonable pace, well, I would be confident that they'll be a mile ahead in the polls. Issue, though, too, is that uh, the government's, say, tax reforms, which they presented in the election as part of their election package, were all unfunded. They have to be passed yes. by the Senate. Chances are the Senate would not pass those tax reforms. And we keep coming back to that very issue, and I think that's the critical one in this whole process. 
it's going to be vital that whoever does form the government does negotiate with the minor parties. You know, Julia Gillard did it effectively. Whatever you think of her government, she was extremely effective at negotiating legislation through not only the House of Representatives, where obviously she didn't have a majority, but also the Senate. People forget she did not have a majority in the Senate. So there was lots of time that she was courting the uh, minor parties in the Senate and compromising. You know, politics is the art of compromise. You don't get 100% of everything you want. So to get some important legislation through, you may have to give a little back or give a little somewhere else in the uh, in the policy program. And she did it well. So it's if you're going to be looking at tax changes and tax reform and spending reform in this new parliament, you've got to bring the minor parties along. And you might get exactly what you want, but you've got to negotiate with Pauline Hanson, with the Greens, with um, Darren Hinch and the like. And to get them to vote for your key reforms, you may have to give a little bit elsewhere. The, the art of negotiation will be absolutely critical in the new parliament because, again, that was Mr Abbott's failure as Prime Minister. He didn't meet with the minor parties in the Senate, or very rarely, and, of course, they uh, jacked up when they saw these policies coming out of left field that he hadn't explained to them. And so they, they sided with the Labor Party and blocked most of it. That can't happen again. Of course, we have historical uh, precedents here. I mean, uh, back in the time of the war, uh, when we had the uh, Menzies government, uh, that, that was a minority government. Then that led to Curtin taking over as a prime minister. And uh, you had issues there. You had issues uh, back in the early 60s with the Menzies government. Uh, they, they were a very, very slim majorities. And somehow they got reforms through. And of course, the issue in Europe is that most European countries have coalition governments. And I think that's an important thing to remember. And they survive reasonably well. Again, it comes back to this issue about compromising. It's about having to negotiate policies that uh, help. And in fact, if we look back to the last time, we'll turn it on its head, the last time that the government had a majority in the Senate and could get its legislation through, well, that was the Howard government between 2004 and 2007. And that's when the infamous work choices came along. And dare I say it, had he not had the majority in the Senate, work choices would not have got through in the way that it did. He would have had to have compromised to get it through. And he might have won the 2007 election because that that incredibly unpopular policy would not have got through. So again, it comes back to this issue. Remember that middle Australia are the ones that determine governments most of the time. And if you go too far one way or the other, that you actually get this concern. And, and with a minority government, with a hostile Senate, with negotiations being absolutely essential to get things through, it's not the worst outcome. And as you quite rightly point out, many countries around the world do pretty well with minority um, governments in place. They negotiate their policies through and um, they're still around after, you know, frankly, decades of minority governments of one colour or another. Now, you say uh, it would be up to the government to come up with a policy to uh, take Australia ahead and get it through the Senate. What sort of policies are we talking about here? Look, I think we need to go back to the drawing board. Now, whether this is me having wishful thinking or, or whether it's realistic, the budget position is still fairly fragile. We know that uh, since the budget was delivered just two months ago, don't forget. It's probably worse. We've had very low inflation, very low wages and commodity prices, even though they've been OK, are probably a little lower than we're assumed. So that's an important thing to remember. So you would actually go back to the drawing board on some spending changes that can be put through and even uh, tax issues. So things like, dare I say it, the negative gearing uh, changes are important structural policy, but they also raise revenue for the economy. Let's have some bipartisan approach to that and get those sort of things through. 
tax hike. Let's look at how we can raise some money in different parts of uh, the economy. So you'd revisit what is a sensible tax change that raises revenue. Don't give it away in company tax or personal tax cuts for that matter, because the critical issue for the next 12 months will be rebuilding the budget bottom line, I think. It'll be sort of trying to get that structural change in place that while you're going to be treading on a few toes in the electorate, it's essential public policy. So you'd be looking at even things like the Medicare levy. You'd be looking at uh, postponing these company tax cuts, which are somewhat expensive. Uh, even in the short term, they're reasonably, reasonably expensive. So it's not impossible, and we don't need an urgent approach to the budget. But if one policy change can be sort of highlighted to be improving the medium-term structural position of the budget, that uh, the surplus is in three years, not four, then I think they'll have done a good job. So how do you see that, Leon? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the question is now, of course, uh, Malcolm Turnbull is edging closer to victory. The question is, by how much, you know, if it's going to be a hung parliament, a minority government, or majority of one? The portents at the moment are with a bit of a push and a tailwind 76. Which ain't much. No, not at all. And he's going to have to make sure everyone stays healthy. Yeah, I know. And then there's a little matter of a speaker to choose. Well, that, that's right. He might offer that to an independent. He might have to. He's up there talking to Bob Catter. Imagine Bob Catter is the Speaker of the House. The mind boggles. <laughs> anyway, now, Leon, the news. Well, Gary, with the pound falling below a $1.31 for the first time in 31 years, it actually hit a $1.28 last night. And amid growing concerns about financial stability of the UK after the decision to leave the EU, analysts are tipping it will continue to fall even further. A Bloomberg survey found that 32 out of 36 analysts said sterling will end the year at or below $1.30. The medium estimate is $1.25. That's below the pound's price of $1.32 last week. Gold prices also surged to a two-year high, and this comes at a time when Bank of England Governor Mark Carney has confirmed that there will be aftershocks from Brexit, and he pledged to shore up financial stability. He warned that the risks from Britain's decision to leave the EU have started to crystallise. Uh, now, the UK currency fell last week after Carney suggested the central bank might e ease policy within months to deal with the economic fallout of the vote. It dropped 3% last week after Carney signalled further action to offset the Brexit shot, and the lower forecast signal a lack of confidence in Britain's economy after the vote, and the big focus of analysts next week will be on the race to be the next Conservative Party leader, and their announcements on Brexit will move the pound. Theresa May is um, well in front, though. That's right. So let's just watch how the pound reacts to that. Now, Gary, with the election looking likely to result in either minority government or the first hung parliament since 2010, where either the Coalition or the ALP will have to rely on the support of minor parties and independents to form government, the three ratings agency have put whoever wins Saturday's election on notice that Australia's AAA credit rating is at risk if they squib on budget repair in the horse trading. Standard Poor's, Moody's and Fitch have put whoever on notice will come out whoever will come out on top on notice that they'll have to move carefully if they want to keep Australia's top ratings. And the ratings agency weighed in after warnings over the weekend from the former treasurer Peter Costello and leading economists that the political impasse following Saturday's election could result in a ratings downgrade. And this also coincides with ratings agency cutting Britain's credit ranking following the shock Brexit vote. And if Trump makes it in America, what's going to happen there? Indeed, indeed. But of course, uh, Stephen Coolis told us he thinks a, a ratings cut is 
on the cards. Yeah, very much. Interesting part is after Saturday's election and shock vote against the LNP, the heat will be on the Turnbull government, assuming it makes it in, to abandon its contentious changes to superannuation. While the Liberals are blaming it on Labor's Medicare campaign in the last two weeks, questions are being raised about the whole white anger the party felt over the capping of tax-free retirement income accounts at $1.6 million and the controversial limiting of concessional top-ups to super at $500,000 over a lifetime, as well as changes to the tax concessional transition to retirement schemes. And some Liberal Party Conservatives are blaming Assistant Treasurer Kelly O'Dwyer, who was of course a Turnbull supporter for the Super Brawl, and they say she should be sacked or shifted. And analysts and Liberal Party insiders say the party's leadership had not seen how its proposed changes had alienated its core supporter base. That also says something about the core supporter base as well, doesn't it? It does. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia has, as expected, kept the cash rate unchanged at 1.75%, while the market is expecting a rate cut in August. Governor Glenn Stevens passed no comment on that happening. He also made no comment about the federal election, but you can be sure the board discussed that. And he said that while markets have been volatile following the UK referendum as investors reprice assets, they continue to function effectively. The next set of figures likely to determine the RBA's decision in August will be the inflation data coming out at the end of July. With the RBA expecting inflation to stay low, markets have priced in the likelihood that the RBA will cut rates in August. Yeah, because the inflation rate is unlikely to show any increase. That's right. Now, consumer confidence has fallen again in the week ending July 3, the week leading up to the federal election, uh, slipping 0.9% following a 1.7% decline in the previous week, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. Now, uncertainty about the federal election outcome and concerns about the global outlook are likely to have driven the downward trend. But over the coming weeks, confidence will be affected if a government fails to secure a majority and a minority government proves difficult to form. Now, building approvals fell steeply in May on a drop in apartments. Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show a 5.2% fall in May on permits granted for new dwellings, apartments and townhouses were driving the decline. They were down by significant 11.3%. I mean, that's massive, Gary. It is indeed. But I have to say, I've always expected this is going to happen. Well, detached houses rose a marginal 0.1%, which was not nearly enough to offset the slippage. And this means residential approvals are 9% lower than a year ago. And I think it'll go further. Well, and it's also the largest fall since November last year. This fall exceeded economists' expectations. At the same time, job advertisements rose by 0.5% in June and 8% this year, year on year. And this is at a slower pace and a smaller gain than previously reported. In trend terms, job advertisements were up 0.4% in June, which is not much. Now, retail sales growth has come in weaker at 0.2%, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The market had been expecting the number to come in at 0.3%, but the annual pace of retail sales growth is now tracking at 3.4%, which is down from 4.1% last year. Now, that is in May, and that just goes to show, Gary, that the rate cut did not affect retail sales at all. And I don't think the next one will either. Well, the warmer-than-expected weather saw clothing sales fall again, which is down 1.4% in May, after a downwardly revised fall of 1.5% in April. Higher petrol prices, which were up 2.4% in May and now 7.9% than three months ago, might have also had an impact. Interesting study coming out of FDI Consulting found there's been an increase in companies going out of business with the end of Australia's mining boom. And they said the number of companies going into administration surged to 10,258 for the 12 months to April. That's up 
up from 8,899 over the same period a year ago. And company insolvencies in Western Australia and Queensland are now running higher than the rest of the country. And FDI found that the property sector was also going through a major correction. And as a result, there's been a number of insolvency. And again, this was more evident in regional towns in Western Australia and Queensland. They're big numbers, you know, aren't they? They are huge. And that's a big worry. Big worry. Now, an index of the services sectors found that growth is continuing, but at a slower pace. The Australian Industry Group Performance of Services Index fell slightly by 0.2 points to 51.3 in June. Now, only two of the nine subsectors were growing. Retail was going gangbusters, rising 5.1 points to 66.6, achieving a record high level of expansion. Finance and insurance again showed strong strong growth, up 8 points to 66.8. But Accommodation cafes and restaurants continued to struggle, slumping 6 points to 36.3. Wholesale trade was down 2.2 points to 42. Transport and storage fell 7.5 points to 36.2, its lowest reading since January 2013. Personal and recreation services recorded a third month of serious contraction. And what it also found is that profit margins are also coming under pressure despite the low growth in wages. Input prices are growing at a faster pace. And selling prices have dropped a further 4.4 points to 44.6. In a low inflation environment, that makes it different, difficult for services businesses to raise prices. And that said, I mean, despite the slower growth, the index is still above 50, showing an expansion, but it's slowing down. And the other indication, certainly on retail, is the number of sales signs that are still up there in the windows. Indeed. Cutting margins and, to some extent, making losses. That's right. Now, to uh, company news, and the owner of Athletes Foot and Dr. Martin's RCG Group has moved to acquire. Hype DC Pritra Limited, which is another footwear retail for an expected price of $105 million. Now, Hype sells premium, exclusive and limited edition sneakers curated from the world's leading brand. It has 57 Hype DCs and three shoe bar retail stores. It generated group sales in 2016 of approximately $120 million. Now, the founders of Hype, Danny and Cindy Gilbert, will continue to manage the business and Gilbert will, Mr. Gilbert will join the RCG board as an executive director and the deal will be funded by a $52.5 million share placement to Hype investors, a third $13.1 million unsecured vendor note and $39.4 million in cash and debt. And RCG says the acquisition will be earnings accretive in 2017. And their share price just went up through the roof. Interesting, yeah. Good on hype. Now, uh, Treasury Wine Estate, which is, of course, the world's largest standalone winemaker, has announced it's divested its cheap, non-core commercial brand portfolio in the US. And the Australian company said it's selling 12 brands at book value. That amounts to 1 million cases, 1 million cases of non-core commercial wine. So think of all that wine, Gary. The sale price was not disclosed. The company said it'd be managing down this portfolio of brands. It said the divestment would have nil impact on its earnings. And Treasury has also forecast earnings this year in line with market expectations of $330 million to $340 million. And the company says it expects minimal impact from Britain's decision to exit the EU because it says Europe represents less than 10% of its earnings and it has an active hedging strategy for the majority of its commercial wine exports to the UK. And of course, Treasury's 45 wine brands include Australia's Penfolds, Wolf Blass, Lindemans, and a number of US labels, including Beringer and Sterling. But it looks as though they're going slightly up market. That's why they're getting rid of it. Yep, absolutely. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Next week, we've got... Chris Richardson. That's right. Very interesting man telling us all about his uh, IPO. And, of course, we'll have uh, a chat with a ranking economist, as usual. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. And we'll talk to you next week.